Today's passage of scripture is Genesis 2:15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, "You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be looking at verse 31 this morning. Ephesians 5.31, where two become one. Two become one. Sometimes Christians adopt too too low a view of marriage, a, a view that is just too low for what the Bible actually teaches. And we've been spending time, a good bit of time, discovering how Christ is to be the model and the central focus of our marriages. But there's still a risk that we could miss an important, a vital aspect that reflects Christ and His church. Because as we've seen, Christ is the central focus. And we're to pattern ourselves after Him and to learn more about Him and His love for His church. But we can miss an important aspect of that by how we think about our own marriages. You see, Christ's love for His church is so deep that He calls us His body. We are in Him and He is in us. That means there's a profound oneness, a oneness that's unique to true biblical religion. This is not the same thing that we find in some pagan religions where individuals who've lived their life on this earth and when they die, they get absorbed into whatever, you know, it just depends on the religion and they are absorbed into that and only the one, whatever that is, is all that remains. So all of our personalities get absorbed into that one and we become not one with it, but we become it. 
That's not at all what we're talking about when we talk about the scriptural teaching of oneness between Christ and His church and especially here, oneness in our marriages. You see, in Christianity, believers retain their individuality, their their individual personalities throughout all eternity. We will, as individual persons, collectively, but still individuals, will worship the Lamb and the one true God. We don't lose our personality being absorbed in the One. That's pagan teaching, not biblical Collectively, we will be God's sanctuary. We saw that back in Ephesians 2 and elsewhere. And He will dwell within. But that's very different from what we find in the world. We will still be individuals. And as Paul there described, you know, individual parts, or Peter says, you know, living stones. We're all going to be still the people we are now, just glorified and redeemed in the fullest sense, and made without sin. So, in as we think about Christ and His church and the oneness that we have with Him, in God's program, marriage is designed to imitate that close, tender relationship between Christ and His church. And, and we'll see that even more particularly when we get to verse 32, but th- that's what we've seen all along from verse 22 going forward, is that... Our marriages are supposed to be a picture of Christ and His church and the love that they have for one another, and especially the love that He has for her, the church. And so, like Jesus before Him, Paul reaffirms God's original program for marriage because it portrays the deep intimacy between Christ and His people. So, Paul teaches us here in Ephesians 5.31 that God intends husbands to lead their wives into an ever-deepening, comprehensive oneness. God intends husbands to lead their wives into an ever-deepening, comprehensive oneness. Last week, as we looked at verses 28 through 30, we learned that a man must love his wife the same way, the same intensity with which he loves himself, his own body, and the, the kind of nurturing that he puts into that, and the, the tender care that he gives to his own body and his self. And a man is to love his wife in that way because three things, and we've already seen the first two, that if he loves his wife, he truly loves himself. So a man that doesn't love his wife isn't loving himself, really. Second, we learned that That man imitates Christ's tender love for his body, the church. And so that's why, husbands, we are called to love our wives the way Christ loved his church, to bring glory to him, to Christ. And then third, we're going to look at the third reason today, why must we love our wives the way we do love our bodies and the way Christ loves his body, is this. The man and his wife become one. That's the third reason. What we're going to do is we're going to see how what Paul does is he reaches back all the way to the beginning in Genesis 2. And he's going to pull forward verse 24 of chapter 2 and say, let me show you how my third point here is true. The man and his wife become one. 
So let's think for just a minute about God's original plan for marriage. And we're going to break this down and unpack it as we walk through this verse. So if we go to the next slide, you'll see that here, God's plan is that the two become one. This is God's plan, His original plan for marriage. First, a man is to leave his parents. Second, he is to cleave to his wife. And then third, the two of them are to grow into a comprehensive oneness. Okay, so that's the overall God's plan. We're going to break this down and go through this bit by bit. Okay, so so we'll be coming back to this in parts here as we look into it. <clears throat> so in Genesis 2, we learn about how God created first Adam, the man, put him in the garden to work, and we read that just a few minutes ago. But God said that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. And so God said that he would create, in verses 18 and 20, talked about this suitable helper, a helper that was fit for him, a helper that was, in a term, a very appropriate term, complementary to him, not like saying nice things about him, but complementary with an E, not an I, right? <clears throat> that she would complement him. She would be strong where he is weak, and vice versa, he would be strong where she is weak. They would complement one another. They would be fitting. She would be fitting for him. Now, Eve was literally taken from Adam's body, as we read. And so, in the very fullest sense, she was bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Moses, to that statement of Adam's, she is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, Moses adds this important truth for us to... He wanted us to understand why did God have that in Scripture? Why did He have that preserved in Scripture? And one of the reasons why is this. Moses tell us, tells us this, this God's original plan, this oneness in marriage. God's plan for mankind was for men to leave their parents and to join with a wife so that the two become one flesh. And this morning we're going to unpack what that means for us. Now, God's original plan was corrupted in Genesis 3. You know, it didn't take long. And that original plan got corrupted. It was corrupted when they fell into sin, when they disobeyed God. And it quickly degenerated further under... Think about the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, all these guys. Polygamy, adultery, prostitution, male domination. And then all through history, when you get to Jesus and Paul's day, there was rampant divorce. And, and Jewish rabbis were arguing over, you know, what are the reasons that we can get divorced, you know. And, of course, Jesus comes along and rebukes them. And he goes back to Genesis. He says, let's go back to God's original plan. Okay. Paul's doing the same thing here. So both Jesus and Paul set out to recapture God's original design for marriage and to make it a key part of new covenant marriage. So it's not that in itself that's not new, but Paul's going to now expand upon it for those of us who live under the new covenant, believers in Jesus Christ, and what our marriages should look like, and what headship for males, what that should look like. And as we've said many times before, it should be very distinct from what we find in the world and in other religions, and even other Christian religions, if you will. 
should be distinctly Christian and distinctly biblical. Now, as I talk about God's original plan, some of you folks are not married. And you may not get married, you know, for a variety of reasons. There are exceptions. Some people, some believers like Paul, they serve the Lord and they serve God's people in their singleness. 1 Corinthians 7. This gift of singleness, and it is a gift from God. It is a blessing of God. It's a blessing that He gives to those that He calls to devote themselves to Him in a special way. And we need to be careful not to think incorrectly about marriage and singleness. Neither one is to be seen as sinful. Neither one is to be seen as a curse. Neither one is to be considered more spiritual than the other. God calls each to what He wants for them. Uh, that was a problem in Corinth, where that's why in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul takes that up. They were thinking that singleness was more spiritual. And Paul's showing that, no, it's not. If God has called you to that, then that's what you should do. But if He's called you to marriage, then that's what He's called you to do. And you need to be content in either case. Uh, it's a problem today. There are people who are teaching out there that if you're single, that's God's curse. And that singleness, what Paul's talking about there, is only a, if there's persecution. And that is not at all what Paul is saying there. He talks about persecution, but that's not the point. Singleness is a gift if God gives that to you. And we need to be careful to understand these things correctly. Both can be a blessing from God. So, the first part of God's plan, original plan, and we're going to start breaking this down now. First, a man is to leave his parents. First phrase we find here in verse 31. A man is to leave his parents. Husband, as we've said from our previous the previous verses, you must love your wife the way you love your body. You need to nurture her. You need to deal with her tenderly the same way you do with your own body. Why? Because the two of you are designed to become one. That's what he's saying here in verse 31. The two of you are designed to become one. That's why you should treat her with the same intensity with which you treat your body. So back up to verse 28. I want to read, get a little bit of that context and get us into verse 31. Ephesians 5.28 So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes or nurtures and cherishes it, treats it tenderly. Just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. For this cause, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. God created the idea of oneness in marriage for this reason. It was not an afterthought. God didn't say after he had created marriage and the oneness of marriage, like, oh, hey, you know, now that, you know, I, I thought about this idea of sending my son to die for sinners, that this would be a great way to picture his church. No. He planned all of that in eternity past before He had created anything. It was God's plan in eternity past to create oneness in marriage to be a picture 
of his son and his son's body, the church. He had all that planned from long ago. It was not an afterthought. It is a living picture. Oneness in marriage is a living picture of Christ's tender care for his body, for his church. And that is what Paul is wanting us. That's why he goes back to the beginning to show us that this has been God's plan all along. Now we see in Jesus Christ this church that was a mystery. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Now we see Christ and his church and the deep love Jesus has for his church. And we should. Our marriages ought to strive to be beautiful pictures of Jesus and his church. The love that he has for her. In most cases, God does not intend for children to remain under their parents' authority forever. Men are typically to take the initiative in pursuing marriage. You know, guys, if, if your wife asked you out the first time, that's okay. <laughs> but, but it's our responsibility to see to it that if God has for us to get married, that we take the initiative. And that's what he says, a man shall leave his father and mother. And at the very latest, he, he may have already moved out and is on his own. But at the very latest, when he gets married, biblically, he is to leave mother and father. At that point, he is not to still be considered a part of their family in that sense of being under their authority. And so following his lead, his wife should also leave her parents. So that's because when a, when a couple marries... They form a new family. They form a new family unit. A, a new authority structure, if you will, with the, the husband being the head of the home and the parents being the head of the children. The old parent-child bonds are ended. Yes, they still are to honor their parents, but they're no longer part of their parents' home. They are no longer under their authority. And this is important for us to understand. The responsibilities toward their parents change. Now, that said, MacArthur points out this. Parents are always to be loved and cared for. But they are no longer to control the lives of their children once they are married. Now, sadly, even Christians sometimes are guilty of this. That Christian parents will have an outsized role in their children's lives, even after their children are married. And, and that's a problem. That is not biblical. They subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, continue exerting control. They will offer financial support, but of course there are strings attached, right? You need to do things the way we want you to do things. Um, protectiveness. You know, I get it. you're the parents and you've been protecting them for all these years. And and it's hard. You know, I, I tell my girl, my girl is like, you're still a little girl to me. You know, it's just that's how it is. Right. But we have to make that shift. And and so we have to understand that I, I'm I'm not the head of their home once they are married. Her husband is. Uh, some parents try too hard to impose their advice. They want to steer them in every direction. And, and parents, we need to let them make mistakes. We need to let them fail. And if it's going to be an enormous, you know, you can't come back from that kind of failure, okay, maybe you speak up just as a, a brother and sister in Christ and say, okay, you better think about this. But 
we need to let them make mistakes. That's how we learned, and that's how they're to learn. That's how he is to learn to lead. And if parents keep trying to lead this new family unit, he will never learn to lead the way he is supposed to and called by God to lead. Now, I know that's hard. You don't want to see your kids get hurt. You don't want to see them, you know, make mistakes that, okay, this is going to be tough now. But we have to let them. And remember that God is in control. He is sovereign. We're not. That doesn't mean we're not involved, but we step back. And we give them room to make their own decisions. And if they they come and say, and, and not too often, but they say, hey, we're thinking about buying a house. Got any pointers? Give them pros and cons. Don't tell them which house to buy. And don't tell them, you know, this and this and that. Give them the pros and cons. Here are things you ought to think about. Now you go make your decision. That's how we parents ought to work. And not say, well, if you, you know, pick that decision, then you know, I'm never coming to visit you. You know, we don't do those kinds of things. He is to leave his parents, and so is she. That is God's design for marriage. Second part of this, Paul tells us, is that the man is to cleave to his wife. Look again, verse 31. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And again, you see, this is the man's responsibility to to initiate. doesn't mean his wife is not supposed to work at this. She is. But he's to initiate. He's to see that this is happening. That they cleave to one another. To cleave means to glue or cement together. It has the idea of joining together tightly. It's more like our modern day idea of welding two metal objects together where they become one object, in a sense. It's closer to that, the word for cleave, than the, the idea of us just nailing two boards together. Because you nail two boards together, a lot of times, you know, you can separate those and you can barely tell that they had ever been joined. Whereas if you had welded them together and you welded them well... Now, if you go and cut them apart, you're going to see they they were once joined. Okay, that you know it'll, it may even be a little bit of a mess. So this idea of cleave, even though they didn't have the metal welding we have today, it's closer to our idea of welding. Now, a man's bond to his parents can be very strong, but when he joins himself to his wife. It forms, as John Eady says, a more powerful attachment. And and men, I want to ask you, especially those of you whose parents are still alive, is your attachment to your parent or parents stronger than to your wife? If so, that's a problem. That's not the biblical plan. Ladies, same thing. Is your I know in ladies a lot of times your you know bond to your parents is very strong. And that's not bad, but the bond to your husband better be stronger. It better be a much more powerful attachment. And that's what Paul's trying to get across. That's what, what Moses was trying to get across. Third, man is to leave his parents, cleave to his wife, and then the two grow into a comprehensive oneness. And I'm going to explain where I get that idea of comprehensive from. 
the two are to grow into a comprehensive oneness. Again, verse 31. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother. He shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a significantly stronger bond than either of them had with their parents. Literally, Paul says, and the two shall become into one flesh. He's trying to drive home the idea of the bond that they have. By using this word into, they're, they're in a sense, growing into each other, into this bond. And we talked about the word flesh back in verse 28, remember. We said here, in this context, it doesn't have those ethical overtones when Paul, like when he uses it in other places where flesh is the sinful part of us, right? No, here it's talking on one level of the physical body, that which we, you know, we call flesh and bones, right? Or flesh and blood, you know, the flesh. But that physical body in this context pictures the self. Back in verse 28, see, the the man who loves his own flesh loves what? Himself. You see, it's a picture of himself, who he is. So you can see this idea is now expanding beyond just the, the flesh and blood concept of flesh. It's more than just the physical. It does include that. And that's an important part of it, as we'll talk about. Now, as, as we're developing that, let's think through some things. The woman shouldn't become absorbed into the man. That's not the idea. The man should not become absorbed into the woman. You know, that, that's the pagan idea, right? Of going to nirvana or wherever and you just kind of get absorbed and your, your personality is gone. Sometimes that happens in marriage, and that's wrong. Where one person overshadows the other, and the other is just basically, their personality disappears. And that is not biblical. Together, they make a third personality, if you will, a third self. I mean, if you've been married for very long, you've noticed that. You know, you're you, and he or she is them. But the two of you together, is it's, it's this whole other unit, Right? There's something about that that the two of you together almost have a, a personality, right? And that's the idea he's getting to here. Now, each retains their individual personalities, but together they a third reality emerges. The two of you together is like this third um, entity almost. And one of the ways to kind of picture this is that uh, if God gives you children, then that child is a picture of this new organism, if you will, that was created, this new entity, the marriage. See, so the child is a product of that marriage. And now, there, that, that only goes so far because, you know, if you know your science, biology, that it's part of the mom and part of the dad that make the child, right? You know, so you might say, you know, just round numbers, a half plus a half equals one. Well, that's mathematically correct. But I like how uh, Wayne and Carol Mack will say it in their book and how they entitle one of their chapters, one plus one equals one. Okay, mathematically that's not correct, but biblically it is, okay? So when we're talking about one man and one woman 
and they form one marriage, one household unit, you see, one entity. As I said, back in verse 28, Paul equates the husband's flesh, the, the, his physical body, with himself. That's his self, if you will. And so when we talk about the marriage, this, this term where they become one flesh, it should not be seen only as the physical, as uh, talking about physical intimacy between a husband and wife, but rather it's a union of themselves in every way. And there's that idea of comprehensive coming out. You see, it is to be a oneness in every way. John Stott puts it well. He says, God intends this not only to be a union of bodies, but to symbolize and express a union of personalities. Now, again, you're not going to lose your personality, but the marriage is going to take on its own personality, if you will, by being, you know, one plus one equals one, right? The whole of each of you goes into that. So, what should this oneness in marriage look like? Uh, Wayne and Carol Mack, again, they, they call this a comprehensive oneness. And this is how they define oneness. They say, oneness is a lifelong, exclusive, comprehensive union of an entire man and an entire woman to each other. And, and that's the biblical design. That's what Moses was talking about, and that's what Paul's talking about. Paul especially bringing it out as he, in verse 28, was showing that what he's talking about with the flesh has to do not just with the physical, but the whole self, including the physical, right? One spouse should not become a duplicate of the other. Nor should one dominate the other. Now, we are going to impact each other, hopefully for the better. And there'll be some things like, you know, if one spouse is, you know, more joyful than the other, then hopefully the, the less joyful spouse becomes more joyful. And then if one is maybe more, you know, Solomon, you know, serious about, you know, things of God. The other one will also, you know, and so we, we're going to become like each other in growth. You see, as we grow in Christ, we grow in our understanding of the word. But not in the sense of where just one overshadows the other and dominates the other. It shouldn't be this domination at all. So... We're going to have a little longer time of application here than normal. And I want to walk through the eight areas of, of unity in marriage that Wayne and Carol Mack talk about in their book, Sweethearts for a Lifetime. It's a great book. Connie and I have taken couples through that. Um, it's an excellent book. And they have two chapters on this oneness in marriage. I'm just going to you know, summarize it all for you guys and hopefully whet your appetite and you'll go read the book so and get more out of it. But... I want us to come away understanding that it's the whole self, if you will, of each person that becomes one together. And it's not just physical intimacy. Okay, first, spiritual. Pray, read, study your Bibles together. Um, address spiritual concerns and problems together. Develop sound theology together. Now, does that mean that you have to sit down at the table or whatever, at the desk, and study together, and it can only be that. No, not at all. Okay, Connie and I have done that. But what we do most of the time is she studies what she's studying, and I study something else. But the key here in the oneness is that we talk about it. We talk about what we're learning. We ask questions, and and we help each other grow and, and develop our theology and our understanding of Scripture. And, and we don't 
we do spend some time praying together, but then there are times where we talk, okay, how should I pray for you? Or we talk and listen, you know, better yet, right? And then pray for each other. And then we say, hey, I've been praying for you about that. How's that going? You see, that is the oneness. That is what the Macs are talking about here. And I think what Paul wants us to take away, and of course, spiritual, this is kind of the most important, but at least talk regularly about what you're learning, okay? That should be a time, a pleasant time together where you can talk about what's God doing in your life. What are you learning? What are you learning about the Bible and sound theology and so on? Intellectual, the next area. Be consistent in sharing your thoughts, your ideas and opinions. Um, discuss decisions. Again, you know, we talked about that, man. Just because you're the head doesn't mean that you just decide on your own and leave your wife out of it. That's wrong, okay? That isn't the biblical model. Talk about decisions. Get her input. God has given her to you as a good, gracious gift. She has wisdom that you don't have. Make use of that. Talk. Intellectual. So you're sharing your thoughts with each other. Emotional. Okay, and I, hang on, guys, I know. Yeah. The ladies are going, yes, you know, and the guys are like, oh my, you know, run for the hills. Rejoice together, weep together, but together, not the same. Okay, so guys, don't ever feel pressured to be just like your wife. I know she wants you to be just like her with emotions, and you want her to be like you, like, you know, no emotions, right? But just together, not the same, okay? Uh, The Macs say this, God wants husbands and wives to communicate their feelings to each other. Hang on, guys. He also wants us to help our mates to appropriately express and deal with their emotions, okay? So, guys, if you're your wife, just saying, I know this is typical, so just going with it. If, if she's more, you know, her emotions come out more readily and sometimes, you know, over the top, okay? And for you, that's like, you know, work with her, help her, say, okay, I want to know how you're feeling. But can we, you know, and say in a kind way, can we kind of, you know, bring it down a little bit? Let me ask you some questions and you share with those things with me and... And that sort of and guide it, okay? Because you know it doesn't have to be the same as if she's with her gal pal and their you know their emotions are, are you know like a volcano, okay? Yours doesn't have to be like that with her, okay? Now, wife, same thing. Husband's like, yep, mm, no emotion, just mm. draw him out. Husband, let her, okay? You don't have to become like her. In fact, you shouldn't become like her. You're two different people. Keep your personalities. But learn biblically to open up more and share a little bit more. Okay? And and take small steps, okay, and work toward that. But emotional oneness is appropriate for us. Social and recreational. You should have mutual friends. And you should spend time together with those mutual friends. And it's okay to have separate friends, like he has, you know, a buddy and she has a gal that she likes hanging out with. And so that's okay. Just don't let those separate friends pull you away from each other. That might mean that, yeah, you're going to go, you know, hang out and do something with them and something. 
But don't let that become the norm. Okay? That's okay, but you you want to be spending most of your time where you're doing things together. And then also recreational there. Uh, make sure that you have some common recreational activities. Now, you may not share the same things and the same loves and interests, but find some where you can. You should have some, at least, that you spend together. That means we both have to die to self, right? And we may, you know, I'll go hang out at the fabric store with Connie, you know. And, you know, there's a lot of dying on my part, I'll be honest. But I find a way to entertain myself, okay, and try not to embarrass her, okay. But, you know, and she'll come to Harbor Freight with me, you know, and so, you know. We, we've got to do some things together, okay? Vocational. When possible, help each other in their work activities. And that's not always possible. But sometimes you can, in some ways, help. You should at least take an interest in each other's work. How was your day? What did, what did you wrestle with today? I can tell you're beat. What was it like? And... and Guys, this is for you to do too, okay? Because even though your wife might not work outside the home, trust me, she's working inside the home, right? That is her work. Take an interest in her work and ask her, how was your day? I can tell your beat. Or, wow, it looks like you had a really good day. You want to tell me about it? How was your work today? Pray for each other in their work. You should talk enough that you know how to pray for them in their work. And sometimes you need, you need to ask, how can I pray for you in your job? And, and then ask them, how is that going? I've been praying about that. Take an interest you know, in their work. Pray for them. Take pride in each other's accomplishments. And, you know, some of you wives may be pretty good at, you know, your husband, you know, he, he gets a promotion, he gets an award or something like that, and you celebrate with him, and it's just great. Guys need to do the same thing. Okay? Celebrate accomplishments. You know, it's like, okay, another kid made it successfully out into the world. Honey, you did a great job, you know, you know, with the, the you know, if you did homeschooling or the, the her part of the raising. Take an interest in that and celebrate accomplishments. You know, other th- things like, I love coming home. Thank you, honey. What a wonderful thing it is to get away from this horrible world and come home and rest. Physical. Uh, on, on two levels here. One, be concerned about each other's health and well-being. Um, you should have an interest in that. Help one another in that as you can. Encourage then also, and this is what people usually think about, and this is all they think about when they talk about oneness, and they read a verse like verse 31, is physical intimacy. That is a vital aspect of oneness. And the Max point out, a spouse must be willing to demonstrate affection to the other spouse in mutually satisfying ways. And that goes against some of the things that I've read out there today, which is sad. But it's true. We should look. You know, how how can I, as your husband, as your wife, you know, provide this you know satisfaction for you in the way that God has created us? We should seek that. That's part of First Peter three seven for men. We are to work 
constantly at understanding our wives. And I say constantly because our wives are growing and they're changing. And so we need to know how to, to understand them. We must learn each other and know how to provide regular and appropriate affection for each other. Aspirational. We need to work on our goals together for our family. What are the goals we have for our family, for our children, uh, financial goals, that sort of thing? And, you know, you both may not have an interest in some of those things, like financially. Uh, you know, Connie's quite capable. She was in banking forever and all. But I, I just like doing the investments kind of stuff and that sort of thing. So she's like, okay, take it. You know, but I go over that with her. You know, I do the tax returns, but then I go over them with her. You know, she's got to sign them, you know. But the, the, I, I let her know, okay, I think, I'm thinking about making this switch. And we talk. But we first talked about our goals, our common goals. What, what is it that, you know, why are we saving money and, and what do we hope to do and that sort of thing. So talk through those things at least and talk with one another, even if one of you does more of it than the other. Uh, same as like when we had the children, you know, she was implementing the education and and a lot, of, you know, so much of their raising. But we talked about it a lot and we tell, OK, we need to revisit this. This is not working. Let's let's kind of talk about it. And then trials. Now, I'm glad they put this in there. Um, Wayne and Carol, we need to be committed to enduring trials together to be faithful to support one another, to be faithful to counsel each other, to care for each other, to pray for one another during adversity. You see, there's that idea of the the husband leading in that nurturing, but also the tender care for his wife. And the wife, wives, you, you know, this doesn't mean you're off the hook. You just need to follow his lead. But he has to be leading in that. And, and so, ladies, you need to do that as well. So we should have that kind of love and care, that tender care for each other. Because when your spouse is going through trials... Uh, whatever it might be, you know, spiritual trials, you know, Lord is convicting them about something or they're, they're having troubles with somebody, um, that sort of... We need to be there and, and endure trials together. You know, if you doubt that, I mean, we're to do that. That's part of the one another's, right? As believers, and there's no closer other than your spouse. And so we should be... Suffering together, not only in the body of Christ, but in our marriages. So, husband, you're to set the example, as we've said, of agape love in the home. And just as you are to do that, you're responsible for leading the two of you in these areas of oneness. So, guys, you're responsible, okay? You're responsible for growing in these areas, these eight areas of oneness with your wife. And ladies, you need to follow. You need to help and encourage. And okay, that's great. Okay, that's not working. Can we revisit that? Okay, work together. But guys, you're responsible to lead in this way. Lead your wife in constantly developing deeper oneness. As we come to the Lord's table, thinking about this idea when. A man and a woman marry, they become one and are to continue growing in that oneness. But they do retain their individual personalities, as we said. 
Okay, they don't get lost in each other in that sense. There's a sense in which we kind of are lost in each other, but not you don't lose your personality. And that's important because of how it reflects on Christ and his church. Again, it's pagan religion that says that people are lost into that nothingness or whatever, right? Biblical religion says, no, no. We're all going to retain our personalities. And we, throughout eternity, will be worshiping our God, our triune God, persons. And we, as persons, are going to worship them. And I wanted to read a few verses from Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Lamb is our Lord Jesus, the one who gave Himself for us, who died in our place. The one who died to save, to redeem a people for Himself. A people that He is, right now, forming into His bride, His body, the church. And then, verse 17, at the end of that chapter, For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd, and shall guide them to springs of the water of life, and God shall wipe every tear from their eyes. See, we as persons, you, the, the you that the, you are right now, if you're a believer, you will be worshiping Jesus, the Lamb, as you. You don't lose your personality. We don't all just become this kind of generic whatever. You as you will be worshiping the Lamb. As the Lamb, as the Jesus who walked this earth, as the Son of God who lived in all eternity past as our triune God. We'll worship His Father, our Father, there in the, in the Spirit. Persons worshiping those persons. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died for people, not for some nebulous idea of all becoming nothing. We will worship the Lamb forever because He is indeed worthy. So let's think about that Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's think about Him as we uh, meditate during this time during the Lord's table.